At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, thanks very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner here at Post 9, front and center this hour. Stocks, the Fed, and your money. And what hedge fund heavyweight Paul Tudor Jones said on this network today about the Fed and how he is playing the market right now. My investment committee standing by to weigh in on all of that. A healthy debate coming up, too. Joining me for the hour today, Tiffany McGee is CEO and CIO at Pivotal Advisors. Josh Brown here along with Joe, uh, Joe Terranova, John Nigerian. It's good to see everybody. Let's check stocks. We're negative. We're down across the board, too, as we kick off what could be a pivotal week for your money, that Fed meeting in focus, and, of course, those comments today from Paul Tudor Jones on Squawk Box this morning. Guys, it's good to see everybody. NASDAQ actually is positive. We're not negative uh, across the board, <laughs> as, I, as I just mistakenly said. All right, Joe, PTJ, okay? This week's Fed meeting is the most important of Jay Powell's tenure. The Fed needs, quote, an immediate course correction. He said the Fed is juicing an already red-hot economy and that things are bat-s crazy right now. Let's listen, then we react. I watched the Fed on Wednesday. Uh, if they treat these numbers, which were material events, they're very material, if they treat them with nonchalance, then I think it's just a green light to, 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 to bet heavily on every inflation trade. The idea that inflation tra- is transitory uh, to me is, is that that one just doesn't work the way I see the world. I mean, this hit it, Joe, on so many levels. I have as many inflation hedges on as I possibly could. The only thing I know for certain, I want 5 percent gold, 5 percent Bitcoin, 5 percent cash, 5 percent commodities. Not sure about the other 80 percent. What do we think about that, Joe? <laughs> So I think we are going to see further inflation, Scott, because I think the Federal Reserve is going to remain anchored at the meeting on Wednesday. I don't think you're going to receive a tapered timeline. I think the Federal Reserve is still looking at uh, employment and looking at the 7 million jobs that we've been unable to get back in the last nine months. We've only gotten back 4 million jobs. So the growth of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is at an all-time high at 79 Five trillion dollars. Paul's right. That equates to inflation. I think investors need to mine for opportunities looking for inflation protection. I've been doing it in oil. I think oil is one of the places where you can find inflation opportunity. I also think copper. That speaks to my Freeport McMoran ownership. And I also think real estate. I think if you look at REITs, which are up 15 percent quarter to date, the leading sector, I think REITs offer inflation protection. I'll give you two names. They're in my quality momentum index, Prologis, ticker symbol PLD, and CBRE. These are inflation real estate protection. But we're going to see inflation uh, as we go forward here in the coming months. Okay, then John Nigerian. So if you think that Joe's going to be right 
and if you think that PTJ is right and will remain right, should our viewers go max inflation hedging right now? Is that the best play in the market? Well, I, I certainly think we're going to be seeing more inflation as we get into the reopening, Scott, um, because right now, like I said, and you and I have had the discussion, there's a lot more demand than can uh, be met by the supply of workers and so forth, many of which will go back when school's back in session, as well as when the unemployment uh, extra runs out. So I think that will uh, cause uh, some nervousness around inflation a lot more than anything we've seen so far, Scott. But clearly, it's there. You know, I went through, I was doing a big presentation this weekend down in Florida, and you look at all the commodities. I know Paul Tudor Jones is a commodity player and one of the best there is. Um, and, you know, from lumber uh, all the way down through the list, you go through like 13, 14 different uh, sectors of those commodities before you get to anything resembling, you know, stocks. So, yeah, we're seeing inflation in commodities like crazy. I would hold those. We talked last week about Cliffs, CLF, uh, Freeport's one we've had, uh, CX, as uh, well as uh, a couple other infrastructure plays that I think are going to continue to get some nice flows well through September and into the end of this year, Scott. So, so Josh, you know, there's the, the PTJ and then there's the reality of what the Fed is going to do this week. And the Fed's not going to do, in all likelihood, what Paul Tudor Jones says they should do. And by the way, Jan Hatzius at Goldman Sachs doesn't think they're going to do anything either. He says they don't expect Chair Powell to deliver the first hint at tapering in the June meeting. We'll find out on Wednesday, but that's the expectation. So if that is the case, what are we supposed to do, says my committee member, Josh Brown. Um, well, we should, we're supposed to have a diversified portfolio that is durable enough so that if there is some sort of a taper and accompanying tantrum, it doesn't blow up our retirements. That might not be the sexiest answer, but understand something. If you're a viewer watching this right now, I promise you there's almost zero chance that you have the same financial situation as Paul Tudor Jones, who is a billionaire and able to put on massive trades and change his mind as quickly as one hour later. And I say that with the conviction that I do, because that's actually how he's made some of the biggest money in his career, by being flexible. So this is his strong opinion today. It may not be his strong opinion next week, next month. And I don't think that a typical investor should listen to a billionaire hedge fund manager and think that they have the same investment objectives. It's ludicrous. It's almost no, like should, uh, going to play should, softball. Should, Sorry? I, I, I hear you. But, but should the, the average investor who heard Paul Tudor Jones, they don't have to be a billionaire to think, well, maybe I should have some more commodities exposure in my portfolio, Josh. So there is a connect inside of a great disconnect in terms of who's actually think, speaking and what their level of wealth may be. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think commodities are a better inflation hedge than stocks? Because the data says otherwise. Commodities can be a great trade, but if you're not a short-term trader and you don't understand the futures market, then why do you think commodities are going to be anything other than a debacle for you? You're not going to be adding futures contracts the way that Tudor does or a hedge fund or a prop trader who's been schooled in how to trade commodities. So this idea that prices are rising and then that means 
by definition that we need to change our portfolios around. I just find the whole premise to be riddled with potential danger for the typical viewer. John Najarian will tell you the commodities market is not something that you do casually if you spend 95% of your time away from the market. You, you have to be full-time if you're doing that. It's not a joke. So I think there's room for commodities in the context of a long-term portfolio if you want to own GLD, for example, if you want to own energy-related equities. Of course, you should do that. But I don't think uh, that, that the inflation we're seeing is anything other than what the Fed told us they were going to try to bring about. They spent 10 years telling us their inflation target was 2% or above. Finally, for the first time in 10 years, we're there. It's not a reason to panic. It's a reason to say, oh, look, this thing that's been widely predicted by the monetary authorities is finally happening. And last thing, don't expect the taper announcement to be on a schedule. The last time they went through this in 2013, Bernanke let it slip out during a congressional hearing, not during a Fed meeting, not during, uh, uh, not during their, their, um, their Jackson Hole event. So this could come out any time. You could all of a sudden see that hint. The market may have a temporary adverse reaction. But what Tudor Jones is right about is that we should be thinking about taper even before the Fed talks about it. It's healthy. We don't need this level of stimulus anymore. Tiffany, PTJ is not the only person who has come on either this program itself or the network at large and suggested that the Fed is doing too much, that it is overstimulating an already red hot economy, whether it's Stanley Druckenmiller, who did it on this network and others, Rick Reeder, who has said it on our program and other big names as well. What do you make of what he said and how we should think about being positioned here forward if he is right. Yeah, so, you know, I definitely agree that, um, and I'm not expecting the Fed to say much this week, so I definitely agree with him on on uh, that front. Um, and I do think the, the Fed is doing a lot, but they're in this very, really, um, you know, unique situation where, again, we were in this event-driven uh, um, recession, right, in 2020, and we're in this K-shaped recovery. Um, and so the Fed has been very, very clear that they're watching two things. First, inflation, and second, employment. And so we're not making the cut regarding jobs. And we had this big disconnect, as, as John mentioned, between the amount of available jobs and the amount of people who are unemployed. So the employment situation is not meeting the Fed's test. So, you know, in terms of, so I'm not expecting them to do anything, right? Um, and in terms of positioning portfolios, so, you know, I think investors should be looking at uh, inflation, uh, at inflation protection. As we come still kind of coming through on the other side of this recovery, we, we are going to see continued inflation because we started from, from, from a very low point. So we have to kind of get back to where we were before. Um, and so a couple of things that, that, that we're thinking about in terms of positioning portfolios, um, you know, we never gave up, gave up on growth, of course, uh, you know, and we're, but we're selectively adding value, right? Value, I, think, I read a stat earlier this morning that uh, in terms of uh, investment portfolios, value is making up like about 72% of, of equity portfolios right now. Um, and so, you know, but I do think that we're going to see a rotation back into growth. 
Um, diversifying across style and size. You should definitely be invested in, in small cap stocks also because they're having ha having a moment. But diversification is is, is the key. Um, and if you're in funds, like we're favoring active management over passive strategies um, in asset classes where where um, we weren't seeing that before, right? Where 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 people where investors traditionally went passive, like U.S. large cap growth. Um, and all I can say is we're not investing directly into Bitcoin, not for our clients. Okay, so. Joe Ternova, I could say maybe it comes down as easy as this question. Should I buy the banks? Should I buy the free ports? Should I buy the marathons? Or should I buy tech? Now, PTJ also suggested that if the Fed does nothing this week, that the Nasdaq could rip. Let's listen to what he said, and let's talk about that on the other side. If you just look at the amount of quantitative easing that we have planned just between now and December, and you think about the 60% correlation between the NASDAQ and the reserves that the Fed holds, you could argue the NASDAQ is going to go up 20% if we stay on this pace. What, what's your thought on that? I mean, theoretically, we're going to, to use his words, stay on this pace, which would keep bond yields from getting out of control, maybe, which would keep the tech trade in vogue, maybe. But then you have the other side of the coin, which is his thought that inflation is going to start to get really, really hot, which in and of itself could push bond yields up, which could make the reflation trade the place to be. What do you think? So both Josh and Tiffany utilized the word diversification, and they did it with the time frame of long-term investing, which is always the right thing to do. But I'm going to use the word diversification, looking at the time frame of just trading in 2021. And it's about zigging when the market is zagging. The volatility is collapsing right now, and it's all about ensuring that you're touching each one of these sectors. So when technology had its moment, Scott, where it sold off just four weeks ago, you wanted to lean into that. I obviously spoke to you about uh, put, increasing a position into CrowdStrike. That was the one of the ways that it was doing it. Financials now are having this experience. What I don't want the viewers to do is start trading a 10-year treasury because it's at 1.47 and predicting where it's going to go, 10 or 15 basis points the other way. I want you to look at what you're holding both in your long-term portfolio and in your portfolio for 2021 and say to yourself, I want to ensure that I'm incredibly balanced and that I'm not overweight anything. I'm overweight diversification and I have all these sectors. So obviously that means right now with financials, JP Morgan on a pullback today because Jamie Dimon is pre-announcing that trading revenue is going to be light? Okay. If you don't own J.P. Morgan, here's your opportunity to pick up a quality financial name. I think that's the right way to look at it. All right. Well, Josh, that brings me to you. I mean, you own J.P. Morgan. Is this the right environment to start adding more to the financials, or do you go the other side of the coin and play the tech trade that Paul Tudor Jones was talking about, that Tom Lee talked about on this very program, that Jim Cramer talked about on this program as well? What is the best trade right now, and is it the NASDAQ? Is it tech, which he thinks can go up 20% if the Fed doesn't do anything? And that's the base case at this point. Over the last six weeks, it's become increasingly fashionable for people who uh, missed out on a lot of the gains of the last 10 years because they've pigeonholed themselves as, quote, value investors to now come out and take this victory lap because cyclicals had a good couple of months. Unfortunately, that story is falling apart. Let's do some charts. ARKK, the primary uh, 
vehicle through which people are playing small and mid-cap growth stocks is having a huge rebound, highest level in a few weeks, looking pretty good. Shopify is breaking out to the upside, one of the poster children for large cap, large valuation tech. Square looks good too, SQ. Take a look at Zoom, monster rally off the lows uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Roku is in the middle of a monster breakout. DocuSane is on an insane run, and that run is continuing. None of these are cyclicals, Judge. None of these are value stocks. Meanwhile, the banks, the materials, industrials, they've had a good first half so far. They're pulling back, but the pullback looks healthy because the queues are right near all-time highs. And what we know for a fact about the market environment we've been in is that the rotation has continually led to, uh, uh, to new highs. It's happened every time. So now you have Apple back at its highs of the last 30 days. Amazon is still running. I told you, I think that's the biggest one in the second half. So this idea that we have to choose and we have to say, oh, it's an inflationary environment. I'm buying cyclicals. Oh, wait, no, just kidding. The 10-year is falling. I'm buying Qs. That's not the real world for most investors. You need to be in both places. And to Joe's point, you should zig when the market zags. So if you have another 10 grand to add to a portfolio and you see growth out of favor for four weeks, that's the answer. Do that and vice versa. That's what I've been doing. I've been talking about this for a long time. It's working. I will continue to do that. And I think it's, re- it's a reasonable answer to your question. It's common sense. Own both. Buy what's out of favor temporarily. Okay. NAS highs of the day. So Tiffany McGee, I'm no longer going to call them the Kathy Wood stocks. I'm going to call them the Tiffany McGee stocks because you own so many of, of those names uh, that, that Josh yeah. was talking about. And they have had... To Josh's point, a very nice rebound off of a very tough pullback. Mm -hmm. So does that momentum now in the names that you hold so tried and true, um, you know, the Pelotons, the Zooms, I think there's DocuSign, but you know the names I'm talking about. Do they have big runway Mm -hmm. now ahead? I do. You know, I, I, again, um, whether we're listening to, you know, uh, uh, Paul Tudor Jones or, or whether we're, we're just kind of playing or you know, ha- have a diversification strategy, I do think that they have runways. And, you know, um, all of those names that you mentioned, I, I can remember on the show uh, you really grilling me about Zoom and I just, you know, really, really stayed strong. Um, and there are so many stories like that. Yeah, I do think that they have runway. But this, you know, th- this pullback is natural and it's fine. It doesn't feel good when it's happening. But that's all, you know, I- exactly what, you know, Joe was talking about, this zig and zag. That's why you own a diversified portfolio. I, I own these names for the long term, not for a week or a month or even a year. We're holding, we're, we're holding positions for years with an S, right? And so over the long term, we have conviction around every single one of those those names that you know that I own. And we do think that there is runway over time. Okay. Let's bring in our headliner today, Brian Belsky. He's the chief investment strategist at BMO. He joins us live now from Minneapolis. Brian, welcome back. Thanks for having us. I want your opinion on what Paul Tudor Jones says. I mean, does the Fed need an immediate course correction? And is it time for all of us to perhaps be a bit more hedged than we are? in the thought that inflation is really going to come roaring back? 
Well, BGB at BMO thinks PTJ is uh, just another macro person that uh, has uh, really not done very well the last 10 years. His, his track record the last 10 years hasn't been great being a macro person. And I, and I think Josh did a great job adding some perspective to, to investors right now. You don't want to listen to someone that's making these short-term calls. Do I believe uh, that the Fed's going to do anything this week? No, I don't think so. I think everyone's spot on on that. Uh, do I believe that the market's going to have a temper tant- uh, a taper tantrum when they do? Yeah. I mean, it's like, that's like saying the sun's not going to come up tomorrow. But I think this, I think people are forgetting that the Fed changed its mandate last year at Jackson Hole. And they moved away from inflation and toward employment. Joe talked about 7 million jobs lost. We only got 4 million left. This is all about jobs. And we're already at inflation targets. This is about wage inflation, and this is about um, getting the job uh, information and job, job growth going. So this is what I would say. I would say that you want to be equal weight across all sectors. You want to be equal weight across small, mid, and large cap stock. Everything in moderation. This is not about macro. This is about picking stocks. And, yeah, we're going to have a big rebound in growth. We've already started to see that. Value has kind of run its course, especially on the energy side. But I think the biggest difference in looking at value stocks is you want to be still overweight, Areas in financials that thematically are scalable, meaning money center banks, asset managers, brokers. I think the regional banks have kind of run their course. I think there's still a great opportunity in the J.P. Morgan's Bank of America's Black Rocks, those names. I think there's still a lot more to go there. But you do agree with him that there's going to be a taper tantrum. So he's not quite the hack that you described at, at, in your opening commentary. <laughs> No, I don't think he's a hack. I don't think anybody's a hack in this business. This is a tough job, and you have to be humble well, I mean, sometimes. You destroyed the, and, the, your first comments were saying that he doesn't. I wouldn't listen to him because he's been wrong for the last ten years. I wouldn't listen to him because he's a macro uh, macro investor. We're bottoms up investing. I think bottoms up and active investing has outperformed for ten years. So no, we're going to listen to the way that we run money. And I think macro had its day in the sun in the first ten years of this new millennia, but it hasn't the last ten or twelve years, Scott. So I think you have to kind of call it what it is. But I do believe, like saying that the market's going to have a, temper ta- a taper tantrum. I mean, that's like stating the obvious. Of course it is. But again, I think the, uh, in terms of the telegraphing part of it, they're not going to say anything in a Fed statement. They're going to say something offline, just like Josh said. And I, I think at the end of the day, uh, this is going to go a lot longer than everybody thinks. I go back to, to uh, quantitative easing started essentially in 2007 when the Fed opened the window, and it ran for seven years. Ourselves at Strategist back in the early days of the recovery post the financial crisis in 2010-11 during the stupid committee talks, we thought for sure that the Fed should be tapering then, and they would not. This is going to go on a lot longer than everybody thinks. Last Lastly, um, calling the bond market for an equity person, I think, is always very dangerous. But at the end of the day, f- bonds are trading below 150. On your very program, back in January, February, I already thought the market uh, bonds were going to 2%. This has been the most befuddling move in, in bonds this year, and I think everybody's gotten it wrong. So that's why I'd go the well, other think, way. But I don't think everybody is in agreement that there's going to be a taper tantrum. I mean, Josh, you, you've said multiple times in recent weeks that you don't see a reason why there has to be a, a taper tantrum. I can play the sound if, if I need to, but you said that. So not everybody thinks that. Yeah, there, Josh? I hope, there, I, I hope there is a taper tantrum because I'm putting money to work into that, just like I did in 2013. I don't know that there definitely will be for the simple reason that the consensus and just people you talk to on the street, 
they're starting to sound more like Paul Tudor Jones, and they're starting to say the same thing. This is crazy. I can't hire people. I can't buy stuff. Everybody feels that way. The thing about inflation is that talk to any random person. They have five anecdotes because everyone's feeling it. So if the consensus is that the Fed needs to change course or start tapering and then they do it, what if that's greeted with a rally? Just I'm just saying it could happen. We don't have 100 examples of tapering. We have one. So a sample size of one is not science. The last you thing I, I want to a- ask uh, Belsky, though, well, yeah. let, me, let me ask this question. Go ahead. We, we, got the hint of a tape of, we got the hint of a tapering, which sent the 10-year yield from 1.7 to 3% in the summer of 2013. That's what we're all describing. And the stock market had a little mini uh, uh, panic attack. No big deal. It wasn't until the first quarter of 2014 that the Fed actually started to taper. So you had six months to get used to it. It wasn't until October of 2014 that the tapering was done. And then the Fed went even further. They didn't stop shrinking their balance sheet until August 2019. And by the way, the 10-year yield at that point was right where it is today, 1.5%. So I wanted to ask Belsky, if in fact they announce a taper, what if it's bullish because people feel relieved? And two, shouldn't we just expect this to go on for years it's not a one-day or one-month tradable event. Of course, Brian, so, because you know, who el- you know who else, Brian, has that long memory of the last taper? is the Fed itself. And Leisman's own new reporting last week was how extraordinarily careful they are going to be because they don't want that same episode any more than investors do themselves. So maybe everybody is getting it wrong on what's going to happen in the market, including you. Well, no, I mean, I think that we could see, and I think we are going to see a short-term blip in the market because everyone is so scared about tapering. They've already talked themselves into it, Scott. But I do think that's, that Josh is spot on, that stocks are the best inflation hedge. We need, that's what we need to own longer term. And any kind of taper tantrum, if it's a two-hour tantrum, we'd be buying aggressively because we do see stocks higher a year, five years, and ten years from now. So, yes, we'd be buying on any kind of weakness. And I think that's where I think people are wrong, that they think that the end of the bull market's happening because the Fed's going to start tapering. I think that's the wrong call. What about what about his call on the Nasdaq? If the Fed does nothing this week, that the Nasdaq could go up another 20 percent because of the bond buying they're doing and how correlated it is with the direction of the Nasdaq. You agree with that? Well, 20 percent is a pretty aggressive number. I mean, you got to think about it. You got 27 percent in tech, 13 or 14 percent in communication services, only about 40 percent of the market. That means the 40 percent of the market would go up. Uh, we like that because we're invested there. Uh, I think it might be a little aggressive, but that's why I think you need to be more evenly distributed. Another way to say diversified. And I think you want to be everything in moderation across small, mid and large and, and really can maintain that 26, 27 percent position in tech. That's the that's the benchmark. In the S&P 500. All right. Good stuff, as always. I enjoy the conversation, as I always do, Brian. Thanks for the time today. Thanks. All right. That's Brian Belsky joining us. Well, this reopening name has been sizzling over the past year, but has gone nowhere this year. Now we have a bullish call and a new one saying to buy it. We're going to debate it next in our call of the day. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We'll be right back. We could try to explain what it's like to get your work done on a John Deere mower, compact tractor, or Gator XUV. 
But to really understand the feeling, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. For the first time ever, NATO leaders are declaring that China poses a security challenge to the alliance and that China is working to undermine the global order. China also getting called out for its fast-moving development of nuclear missiles. Russia and even climate change are also getting mentioned as key NATO priorities. CNBC reporter Eamon Javers is in Geneva, and we'll wrap it all up tonight on the News with Shepard Smith. A top national security official at the Justice Department is resigning. That's amid continued uproar over data seizures from lawmakers and journalists. John Demers is expected to leave his position by the end of this week. And the Minnesota court is affirming key approvals for an oil pipeline replacement project of Enbridge Energy. Critics have opposed the multi-billion dollar project over concerns of environmental damage. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Rahel Solomon. The investment committee is making some moves today. Tiffany McGee's buying more Target. It's an interesting one. Why so? I did. Yeah, so we just got a new client, so Target is a staple for us. Um, you know, it's consistent and stable. Uh, we own it to balance out some of the more volatile names that we own. Um, it's done its job over the past few months, especially as tech has been struggling. Um, and then we also like it from an ESG perspective. They have some uh, strong diversity policies, so, yep. Yeah, that's an interesting move. Dr. J, um, I know you, you still have some exposure in Target? Oh, yeah. Yes, I do, Scott. Uh, still love Target and uh, think that virtually everything they're doing um, plays right into the strength of uh, the reopening trade, going back into those stores rather than their omni-channel or their digital, uh, which worked out phenomenally for them during the pandemic. And I think that many of the stores have been redesigned, Scott, so people have a better experience when they go in there. So, yes, still own Target. Yeah, they've had a nice move. Three months up nearly 29%. Let's talk about another stock. It's had a nice move. Chipotle, big bullish call today. It was upgraded to strong buy today over at uh, Raymond James to outperform. Price target, $1,800. Joe Terranova, you have this one. I do. Well, $1,800. Let's first get it back to where it was uh, just three weeks ago. It's been pulling back a bit, Scott, but I'm staying with this position. I believe in it long term. I think the digital ecosystem is what the long term investor wants to focus on. 50% of sales there uh, are, are being derived di uh, digitally. We've got digital stores that are opening. There are offerings on the menu that are digital only. 
and the loyalty program continues to grow with over 20 plus million. Understand though, the comps are going to be challenged here in the coming quarters. Same store sales are not going to look like what they did in 2020. So you might have to endure some sideways to lower trade, but focus on the long term and the introduction of this digital revenue stream that did not exist pre-pandemic. Is, is 1800 too aggressive in your mind? I mean, the 52-week the on this one is 1579 and change. Yeah. Uh, uh, let, let, let's get it back above 1500 first. Uh, yes, I think 1800 uh, for 2021 is clearly too aggressive. Boy, speaking of aggressive calls today, another one that caught our eye, Tiff, is Ferrari. We never talk about this stock. I'm glad we are today. You own it. Double downgraded at Goldman Sachs to a sell. Price target slashed to 207 from 227. I mean, they give a variety of reasons, but tell me what you think we should do uh, if there's somebody who followed you into this name, owns it like you do. What do I make of this call for race? Um, I, I really don't agree with it. You know, uh, Ferrari is one of those names that really did very well during the pandemic, apparently in addition to buying, you know, homes and, and, and making their, their spaces uh, uh, pretty uncomfortable. People were also buying luxury cars, including Ferrari. So not sure why. Um, I, I really can't, can't speak on, on this call. But, um, you know, they've, they've got a new CEO who starts September 1st with a tech background, semiconductor background. Um, I think that he's going to do well. Um, so we're, we're holding. So I'm not, I'm not um, you know, quite sure why they're, I mean, oof, double downgrade. That's, that's pretty harsh. They say that they expect Ferrari to accelerate its transition to technologies of the future. Yeah. While we would view this development, I'm quoting from the note, while we would view this development as a positive yeah. for the long-term future, we believe it may drive the need for incremental capex, i.e. higher spend. That's a legitimate concern, right. is it not? Yeah. Yeah. It, it is legitimate concern, and I think that if you are more of a trader or short-term investor, I think that you have to be um, thinking about those kinds of things. But Ferrari is the name that we're going to hold for at least the next few years. So we're, we're going to be well-positioned to kind of capitalize on, uh, on, that, um, on, on the performance long-term. So we're, we're fine with holding it. All right, Dr. J, I got one for you. Wells Fargo, okay, um, because it was mm -hmm. named one of the top picks today. At Morgan Stanley, what do you think about that? Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Housing, well, housing place, Scott. Obviously, this one continues to work out very well because of low interest rates, whether it's refis or whether it's uh, people uh, uh, pulling some money out uh, just so that they can invest. Uh, you're seeing an awful lot of activity in their loan portfolio, Scott. And I think that's, uh, even though uh, they're borrowing it next to nothing, uh, they're still lending it out substantially higher than nothing. Uh, that's a good business model for any of the banks. And Wells Fargo has exposure to consumers uh, like few others. Another, another part, I want to do it quickly. Another part of this call that I, that I thought was really interesting was the BlackRock call. Um, overweight. They say it's among the best position to benefit from trends in both ESG and investing and customization. Josh, I'm just curious your thoughts on, on a stock like BlackRock. It is their most favored name right now in that space. You can see it's not, not a big mover today, but it's, you know, it's had a decent run. What do you think? It's had, an, it's had an amazing run, and they're right. BlackRock is one of the best position asset managers in the world. 
The thing is, though, they have been for 10 years. That's nothing new. The stock already has a premium multiple over the asset management group. I would say a deserved one. The ESG angle, the only reason people are excited about that is because ESG is one of the few areas that's taking market share from traditional asset management still. It's a growth part of the business, and it commands uh, higher fees versus the index world where people are basically managing your money for free. So I wouldn't get too excited about that. Back to Wells Fargo, um, that's a challenged bank, still significantly lower than its highs from 2018, which is very different from a chart of, let's say, uh, J.P. Morgan, which is at new record highs, BlackRock, et cetera. I don't really like it. I don't think there's a real turnaround there. And I think SoFi and other fintechs based out of that same part of the country in the West Coast are just going to absolutely eat their lunch. So I think you probably want to be a little bit more selective in financials. Um, and people would look at that Wells Fargo valuation and say, oh, it's cheap. I would say the opposite of BlackRock. It deserves to be cheap. There's no reason why it wouldn't be. All right. Up next, we'll tell you the big ETFs you need to watch today. Plus, do not miss the CNBC Evolve Global Summit. It comes up on Wednesday, June 16th. To register, go to CNBCEvents.com slash Evolve. The Halftime Show is back after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Let's get over to Bob Pisani now with today's ETF Edge. Hey, Bob. Hello, Scott. Good to see you again. Money has been pouring into ETFs this year, but now it's happening for a different reason. Over the weekend, Dimensional Fund Advisors has converted four of their mutual funds into ETFs in the largest ever conversion from mutual funds to ETFs. Let's talk to Dimensional's CEO, Gerard O'Reilly. Gerard, we're talking about nearly $30 billion in mutual funds converted to ETFs over the weekend. What's the rationale? Why were you going to go ahead and do that? Thanks, Bob, and good to see you again. Yeah, the rationale, you know, if you look at these uh, mutual funds, they're called tax-managed mutual funds, and they have a long and strong track, uh, track record. Uh, they've been managed with an eye towards tax efficiency uh, over the past 20-plus years. Many of them were incepted in the early 90s. And when you look at their tax efficiency ratios, it's quite similar uh, to ETFs. So you, kinda, you have this set of funds that have been managed with an eye towards tax efficiency, and we're happy to be leading the industry uh, in converting them over to uh, ETFs. Part of that tax efficiency came from how we managed the uh, dividend income. But when you look now at the additional tools that ETFs bring to the table, I think that we'll be able to achieve even higher tax efficiency ratios uh, in those funds going forward. Uh, so very excited about the conversion over the weekend and the listing on the uh, NYSE today. Uh, a lot of work coming to fruition and uh, a lot of work with clients uh, that clients are very excited about. Now, you manage about $630 billion. It's mostly institutional money. Dimensional has been known as a low-cost fund for value investors largely. And for the first time in a long time, value has been outperforming growth in 2021. Small caps have been outperforming large caps in 2021. Is this a trend that has legs? It hasn't been going on very long. Or is this something that's just long overdue? Are we just talking about mean reversion? 
Well, you know, Bob, how we think about value and small cap uh, investing. We think it just makes sense uh, in the sense of there have to be stocks out there in the marketplace that have higher expected returns and the lower price you pay, generally the higher the expected return. Uh, And so this is kind of what we expect more back to normalcy, uh, while the premiums over the course of 2021 have been quite large and, and, uh, and very enjoyable. When you look at small value versus large growth, Uh, Those stocks have been outperforming by over 20 percentage points over the course of the year to date. Uh, And a lot of the investors in our strategies have benefited from uh, that level of outperformance and the overweights to small and value stocks. Uh, So something that we expect, we expect it every day. And uh, certainly it's been uh, realized over the course of 2021. And actually, if you go back almost 12 months now, you see similar levels of outperformance of small value versus large growth. Okay, thanks very much, Gerard. Much more with Gerard on growth versus value, small caps versus big caps, and on why managing accounts for tax efficiency is so important for overall returns. ETF Edge, 105 p.m. Eastern Time. Gerard will be joined by Dave Nodig, Chief Investment Officer at ETF Trends. Remember, etfedge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. We will be there, Bob. Thank you very much. Stay with us. We have John's latest trades in unusual activity, and that is coming up next. All right, it's that time. Dr. J, what do you have for us today in Unusual? Well, let's start off with the biggest stock out there, Scott, Apple. AAPL, uh, huge volume in this week calls, uh, 157,000 of those at the 130 strike. But the one I'll cite for you is next week, the 25th of June, 130 calls. 24,000 were bought really fast today, Scott. So we loved that. We followed them into those. That's, again, next week. Uh, the 25th expiration, 130 strike calls. The other one is Corsair. Um, this one is gaming, um, and they make <clears throat> everything from headsets to anything for basically the streaming uh, complex for gamers. Um, normal option activity was about 8,500 contracts a day. Last week, that moved up to 16,000. So far today, 130,000 calls, Scott. I'm buying the June 140 calls but the one, uh, the 35s earlier today, the 40s now, and I think this one has room to run. 21% short interest, Scott, and I'll probably be in this one about three to four days. Yeah, Kramer was talking about that one as his uh, mad dash with me this morning on Squawk on the Street. It's interesting. Also interesting, Doc, is Apple. Apple hasn't hit in a long yeah. time. That's right. Um, but just like Josh said, top of the show, this one's getting a lot of love today. If I could real quick, Scott, um, go-go. It did go-go for a while, and then it went no-no, as Patty said. So I'm out of that one. Um, the other one, Eat, which is Brinker International, made a great run last week, and we exited that trade, E-A-T. All right. Appreciate the new ones and the updates as well, Dr. J. Thank you very much. Ask Halftime. Coming up next, send your questions by video. We'll play them on the air. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. We'll be back right after this. All right, let's answer some questions now. We do have a question, and we're going to do one today, and it's an important one. It's on General Motors, Amitabh in Texas. Josh, he wants to know if it's a buy here. The shareholder meeting kicks off in less than 10 minutes from now. Stocks obviously had an incredible run, which has slowed down lately, and it's only four bucks or so off of its high. What's the advice on GM? 
Well, I'm sticking with it, so I suppose you could look at that as, as an endorsement of, of first buying in here. But I'm in it from the 30s. I intend to hold the stock for the long term. I bought it initially on a technical breakout, but every piece of fundamental news coming out of the company makes me more and more exciting. They're going to have a fall investor day, which I think will be an even bigger catalyst than whatever they do today. And they might even be rolling out their autonomous driving service for 2022, which will be called Super Cruise. In the meantime, the Chevy Silverado um, uh, truck, which will compete with the Cybertruck and Ford's electric F-150, I think could be an absolute monster in addition to a lot more autonomous and electric vehicle announcements coming. So I am staying long, still think the stock is cheap relative to Tesla, still think there's a lot of potential up front. Joe, uh, plus 45% year to date. If Farmer Jim were here, he would say, you know, similar to what Josh said. I know he's still bullish the name. What about you? Still bullish the name. Agree with everything that Josh said. Tremendous demand, favorable interest rate environment, and the introduction of electric vehicles and autonomous driving. It's something that we didn't even think about just 18 months ago with GM and Ford, which I think also continues to move higher. But I'm in GM. Ford is um, just a couple of bucks off of its own uh, high. Tiff, any risk to the story here? I mean, it's hard for everybody just to say, yeah, I love it. Stay, stay long and strong. <laughs> Should we think about any risks to the story? No, I mean, for us, GM is, again, one of those staples uh, similar to, to a Target. Um, it, it's, it's been pretty steady um, over, again, when you're investing over, um, you know, years and years and years, a, a five-plus year um, uh, time horizon. What we really like is this, is this um, you know, a commitment that they have to go 100% EV by 2030. Um, and they're the number one car maker in the entire country. And it, we think that... Um, you know, that's going to bode really, really well from them, for them. On an ESG front, you know, research has shown that when companies come out and make a public statement like that uh, on ESG, especially on that environmental metric, um, you know, on average, uh, the stock price goes up. And uh, as long as, they're, as, as they um, stick with their commitment. So we like it for that reason um, and just for the reason that it's, it's, it's just it's steady. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, interesting to know, too, a day where, you know, Tesla had its price target cut today as well. We'll take a quick break. Yeah. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. All right, let's rock final trades quickly. Uh, Josh. Uh, GM, everything I said, reiterate, I think the stock goes higher. Okay, Tiff. Uh, Melly, uh, they lead the e-commerce ecosystem in Latin America. got caught up in the growth to value rotation. Good time to buy. All right. Okay, Joe. Landstar, a zig when the market zags trade, industrial sector. All right, John. John? Unity Software, symbol U, Scott, bought it during the show. Good stuff. It does it for us. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.